Welcome everyone to Crisis Conversations, live from the Better Life Lab, where we explore how the coronavirus pandemic is really disrupting how we work and live and expect from uh, each other and businesses and the government, what it's really exposing that's broken and what we need to fix so that we can emerge better and stronger. And today we're exploring something that we already knew was broken and the pandemic is showing is just how fragile it is. And that is our childcare system. And I'll put system in quotation marks there because what we have doesn't really work. We've got a country where the majority of children are living in homes where the where all parents work. Parents pay more for childcare, more for infant care than they do for college education in many states. At the same time, uh, early care providers, they're operating on razor thin margins. They operate mainly out of love. This is a, a labor of love for them. And as our caregivers, the majority make $10 an hour. Uh, it's not sustainable. It's a system that really doesn't work for anyone. So I'd like to start today with you, Patricia. Patricia Moran is a family care provider uh, in California. Um, she's licensed to take care of 14 children, and yet through the crisis, she's decided to stay open for only three. Uh, so Patricia, how are you surviving now with only three children? You know, before this crisis, we, we didn't have any any protection, any support. Yeah. And now with this crisis, uh, we are working very close with parents, with the community. We are seeing their necessities, the parents, single moms, the children. And at the same time, we were like uh, trying to find the cleaning supplies, mm. the food for these kids and yeah. this crisis to keep our children safe. So you said that you stayed open for three children instead of 14. You know, can you talk a little bit more about why? Who were the who were the parents and, you know, why did you stay open? And then what is that like? You've got governors who'll say, oh, we'll just make sure that children stay six feet apart. Well, how can you keep toddlers six feet apart? Um, you know, um, 14 children, but most of those parents, they were essential workers. And my, uh, my daycare is completely open for all the essential workers, but for the system, you know, we are trying to reach those essential workers. As you know, I have an infant and I have a toddler and a preschooler. It is really hard to maintain to the guidelines for this crisis, like a social distance. You can't stop a toddler and say, don't hug me. Don't give me a kiss. It's, it's hard. But I want to come back to the provider side of the story. But let me move over to Rashonda now, Rashonda Anderson, who teaches three-year-olds. Uh, she's an early care educator in upstate New York. Um, you've worked in the early care and caregiving field for, what, nine years? Your children love you. <laughs> uh, uh, work at the uh, YWCA. You've talked about how how what a challenge it is, you know, that in New York State, you do have more of a living wage, but in many places, caregivers earn, you know, on average about $10 an hour, which is just, it's not livable. And what's it been like for you through this crisis? Um, well, my daycare center closed down on March 18th. Our boss gave us different options. So I decided to continue to work um, in the classroom. So I usually was like cleaning, prepping for when we do open back up. I was bringing home the same amount I usually make, but as time went on, it got more, the crisis got more serious. I decided to stay home and work at home. Helping my boss with like um, 
PowerPoints. And at that time, I wasn't working a lot. So my paycheck wasn't a lot. So I also had to use my PTO, which in, I didn't want to, but I had no choice. Yeah. Um, after that, I started feeling a little overwhelmed because we have to do trainings now. It's a 15-hour training a week. And you have to also reach out to parents, uh, do Zoom or Facebook. So on top of me going to school and that also switched over where my curriculum was changed. And then I have to teach my daughter. Right. How old is your daughter, Roshonda? She's five. And so she's out of she's out of school, too. So you're trying to do this and do your own child care at the same time. So just the other day, I actually like turned my phone off because I was overwhelmed with emails and I'm like, I'm slacking on my schoolwork because I'm not that focused because I'm like, I have to do this. I have to do that. Um, I got a little frustrated, irritated. So I decided just to disconnect myself from like the world. Um, So my daycare center is opening up May 18th for sure. Mm -hmm. Um, I haven't heard back from my daughter's school saying if they're going to open up or not. So I also have to figure out what am I going to do when she does, when we do open up, where am I going to put my daughter? Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, let me turn over to Lillian right now. Lillian Monjo, she is an editor and writer at the Heckinger Report. And you wrote a really powerful piece about how this pandemic is is about to shatter what you call an already fragile childcare system. So can, you know, you've heard Patricia, um, Rashonda trying to figure out how to, um, you know, get through the crisis. What can you tell us about the overall system, how it's working and what the pandemic is showing us about just how fragile it is? Well, I think first, I mean, in the headline to that piece, we had system in quotation marks because the truth is there is no system, really. There is no childcare system in the United States. There's a patchwork There's like Head Start funding that comes from the federal government. That's for children living in poverty. There's um, CCDBG, which is an acronym for a program that provides child care subsidies for low-income parents. Together, those two programs reach one in six of the families that are eligible to receive them. So that means that everyone who's actually eligible, it's one in six. And then there's millions more families who can't really afford care. Um, On top of that, the reimbursement rates that are paid to providers are too low to expect quality. So you've got that, and then you've got all the private care, which is the majority of the market. Um, parents struggle to afford that care, and even paying, even even with parents paying the same amount as state college tuition, providers are often unable to meet all the requirements in terms of space and health and safety and, and all the quality requirements and pay their um, workers more than a living wage, as you've been talking about. 53% of child care workers access government benefits themselves because the wages are so close to the poverty level. Wow. Things so like- it's really just, it's not, it's not a system. That's the answer. That's why it's fragile. There's no, there's no one mechanism. Even like with K-12, it's not like the federal government can say one thing and all K-12 schools do it, but at least the state has that kind of network. And that's not true in early childhood. So, you know, one of the questions is when you look at other advanced economies, uh, you know, they don't have this the same kind of patchwork system. They have a much more um, a sense that this is a, a public good. It's almost treated like education, you know, a recognition that this is not a market that works. This is not a free market. Um, why is it that, you know, why are we where we are in the United States and what will it take to change that? Um, It's a good point. I think a lot of American parents don't realize that if they lived in any other developed country, that basically by the time their child was three, at least they would have guaranteed public care. 
um, and and in a lot of places that that's age two. There's also paid parental leave most places of up six months to a year, which gets you a little further down the road before you need to start paying for care. So there's there's just like a whole bunch of supports that don't exist in the United States. Why that is, I mean, ultimately, if you look at the history of the attempts to create broader care programs, there's just a feeling in the United States, or there has been overall, that this is a personal problem. This is a problem for each family to figure out on their own. Children belong to their parents, not the government. That's kind of the attitude. And so repeatedly, um, we've had chances. There was a universal system in place during World War II that was taken back when the men came home from war with the idea that women should now be returning home. Right. Um, in the 1972, there was a bipartisan bill that went to Richard Nixon's desk that would have established universal child care for everybody, and that was vetoed. Um, on top of all that, there's the racial dynamic where poor women and women of color have typically been expected to work, and most of the benefit programs that are supposed to get child care in are aimed at people that are expected to work, which is that group, you know, unfairly, and that's, that's a old racist policy, but that's how it's been. And then policies aimed at the, the middle class have assumed, oh, you're probably like a middle class white woman who's choosing to work and you don't need to go to the office. So it would be better if you were home with your kids. So there's this, mm-hmm. there's this like, and it separates the people who need the care into these two different competing groups when really they all are wanting the same thing. So let me go back to Patricia at this point, you know, because as Lillian said, part of part of why we are in this, this situation where we have a system in quotation marks, it's really broken are these assumptions about uh, who should do what in society. And if policymakers think that, well, it's better if certain women are home and other women are just expected to work, you know, that, that that's not the reality that most people are experiencing. The majority of children in this country are being raised in families where all available parents are working. So if that's our, you know, if that's what the reality is, why do we not have a system that matches that? So Patricia, let's go back to you. You know, uh, we've heard about a lot of these government bailouts and Boeing is going to get, you know, millions and millions of dollars. And yet child care providers who are, like you say, essential workers yourselves uh, have gotten very little. Um, what was your own experience? Have you tried to get some, uh, you know, some government money that was designed for small businesses? And how has that gone? You know, I applied for the SBA check protection loan in the first round. and the money was gone. I couldn't get anything. Wow. You know, and it's a small business. It's a small business that is supposed to, you know, help us. So how, you know, in the past few years, the number of family providers has really dropped, you know, and family providers really do help uh, workers who are hourly workers or who have, um, you know, unpredictable schedules or work, uh, you know, uh, alternative hours, you know, are really the backbone for a lot of who are now uh, essential workers. You know, you were saying, so if you've only got three children coming in, you know, how are you able to pay your bills? Some providers, they are deciding to close permanent the, the childcare business. Some like me, I have a hope something is going to change. Well, so you talk about you had to let one of your caregivers go. So Rashonda, can we come back to you? Because one of the things that really struck me when you and I were talking is, you know, you you talked about going to school and you've gone back to school to get more education. Um, you know, there are a number of requirements now that, um, you know, early care educators have uh, bachelor's degrees or get more um, get more education. But then you're stuck holding student loans 
And you were saying kind of like looking at this crisis and looking at how much you might be able to earn as an early care educator, which isn't much, that you're actually now thinking, even as, even though you love it, you're thinking about changing professions. Can you can you talk about that sort of like the future that you see for caregivers and early care teachers? Um, I decided to change career paths because of financially, I'll be able to provide for my daughter more, um, have health benefits because I don't have that right now. Um, I just know that I just want more for myself and my daughter. She's what's really important to me. Right. Well, you know, we're getting some questions from the chat and thank you for that. Um, so let me turn it over to Catherine White at this point. Some of the questions are about like, well, what do we do? Um, you know, what do we do at the state level? What do we do at the federal level? What are some of the answers? And Catherine, you're with the National Women's Law Center and you've been part of this big new report that's come out really looking at this. Um, so tell us what you and your colleagues have found. So yeah, thank you. And first of all, I just want to say thank you to Patricia and Rashonda for sharing your stories. I, you know, I think they really just show how this system of sorts is at its breaking point. And the situation is just untenable for parents, for educators, for providers. And, you know, for decades, for centuries, we've been asking women to do this kind of essential work without the compensation and supports to do so. And I think what's really crucial and that we show in our analysis is how this is a sector-wide problem. It's not just about subsidy families, and it's not just about private-paying families. This is affecting the whole market. And so what we really need is federal investment that gets dollars to states and then to families and providers to cover all of the ongoing operational costs that providers have, um, including premium pay for providers like Patricia that are open and serving children of essential workers. And that makes sure that educators like Rashonda continue to get paid, have access to paid sick leave and other benefits. And that parents who rely on both of you for the essential work that you provide don't have to pay anything out of pocket. For too long, we've squeezed providers and educators and parents instead of providing the public funding that we know the childcare system needs. If we just want to keep our childcare system afloat during this crisis, we just want to make ends meet right now, the system needs at least $9.6 billion a month in federal funding to do so. Wow. Wow. $9.6 billion a month just for the crisis. Yes. And then beyond that, we know that we cannot just rebuild to what we had before because as Lillian mentioned, this system was not working. So policymakers have an opportunity to reimagine what our system actually looks like so that providers have a living wage, educators can make ends meet, and parents aren't struggling with an unaffordable cost of care as we come out of this crisis. And if we don't take our opportunity to both save our childcare system and then rebuild it to something better than it was, we are going to stymie our economic recovery and mm -hmm. women especially are gonna be left behind. So let's go to Lillian. I see that you, you're raising your hand. You have you yeah, to respond. Just to jump on um, what Catherine was saying, I think the other thing people should know is happening is there's a push right now, and actually it's been going since the original negotiations on the first CARES Act to get $50 billion um, of direct assistance to child care. That, as you, if you're listening to her, $9.6 billion a month, that is not going to be sufficient to cover what needs to happen. And also, so far, there's been no indication that that money is actually going to get there. So there was a letter that came out earlier this week. I think it was 29 Democratic senators, but there's not a single Republican senator signed on. I mean, as the journalist skeptic, I'm not actually seeing. There's been no real interest, it doesn't seem like, from leadership in, in making that a thing. Um, and what Patricia was saying earlier about the 
the loans, like the writing was kind of on the wall for that. That was set up for small businesses, yes, but ones with a business office where there was an accountant who knew exactly how and when to get that loan application in right on the deadline. And Mm -hmm. it was always going to be hard for smaller businesses. Um, And I applaud you, Patricia, for getting through those applications, but it was always going to be hard for the tiniest businesses to get through um, and get that money because it was first come, first serve. So it was complicated from the beginning and unlikely to succeed. Well, at this point, let me turn it over. Let's see, uh, is Abby Lieberman, is, is she a- available to come on? Um, Abby is a colleague of mine at the at New America. She works in the early ed team. And this is a, this is one of the things that you you all have been looking into, the small business loans and how that's working with um, uh, child care providers. Can you tell us what you're finding? Hi, Bridget. Yeah, thanks so much for letting me jump in. Um, there weren't enough. A lot of the child care providers weren't able to get to them. And mostly, I'm curious to hear from the providers, um, again, kind of in line with what Lillian was just saying, what types of supports would be helpful um, from the, from state governments and local governments that you're not seeing that you'd like to see that you think could help you access these resources better? Yeah, Patricia, so what, what do you think would really help? You know, the fir- first of all, they need to hear our voice. They need to hear about our necessities. Child care, family child care providers, we open our daycares four o'clock in the morning, five o'clock in the, mor- in the morning. We mm. take care of kids until midnight, Saturday, Sunday. Right. And yeah, they need to pay attention how much money, you know, right. they are paying us. It's so little. Right. For so, at 12 hours. So you're putting in all of that time and you really need to make sure that it's, that you're, that you're being compensated and that the care that you're giving is actually valued and valuable. So let me turn it over to Rashonda for some final thoughts, you know, so here you are, you know, dedicated uh, early care educator actually thinking about leaving the field. Um, Was that something that really became clear during this crisis? And what do you think the system needs in the future to keep people like you in it? You know, we love what we do, but we also need, they also need to understand, like we have children and family also, um, because I know that I read a couple, a month ago that the governor of New York was saying that daycares would just be open. Like, we're just like, it, we, were, we weren't that important enough where some daycares did open and took a hit and some daycares are taking a hit even if they are open. So I just want people to say like, you know, we do matter in early childhood too. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much. I want to thank the panelists, Lillian, uh, Patricia, Rashonda, Catherine. Thank you so much for uh, joining us today. I want to thank all of the participants who have been on the chat and um, asking all sorts of great questions and sharing your stories. You know, thank you so much for helping us get some clarity about where we are now with childcare and more importantly, why it's broken and, and what we need to do in the future to fix it. So next week, uh, as we get closer to Mother's Day, we're going to we're going to be exploring the pandemic and single parents. Uh, many of the mothers. So hope that you will all stay safe this week and that you will join us again next week for another crisis conversation live from the Better Life Lab.